service, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would bless our time in the word. It would be profitable for our souls. It would bring you much glory in what we say and do and how we handle your word this morning. Lord, we think of those who can't be with us because of illnesses. Lord, those who are still online because it can't quite be among us, Lord. Father, there's been several injuries and surgeries and procedures this week, Lord. We beg you for mercy for those dear loved ones, Lord. Father, thank you for a chance to be in missions around the world. We're so grateful for our missionaries. Please bless them, strengthen them. Thank you for the giving that happens at this church where we can so amply supply for their needs and care for them, Lord. But we ask that you would bless their preaching today as they minister around the world the same gospel we teach. We're thankful for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. I love chapter 4 of Galatians, verse 9. It's a great verse. Just listen to this verse. There is an inspired correction in the verse. Now, that might sound interesting, but listen to it. Paul says this, But now that you have come to know God, and then he says this, or rather to be known by God. Now, I love that, that inspired correction that he makes. So many of us think, well, I've come to know God. No, 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 no. According to the scriptures, he comes to know you. <laughs> He came after you. In fact, you would not find God on your own. He must find you, right? This has been the theme of this series that we're in on salvation. Spurgeon said this, The greatest enemy of the human soul is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. That's the greatest enemy of your soul is uh, someone's own self-righteousness to think that they could present themselves before God. What a deadly, deadly disease that is. A.W. Pink said this, speaking of the glories of God, he says, He foresaw my every fall, my every sin, my every backsliding, yet never last fixed his heart upon me. Isn't that worshipful, isn't it? He sees our sins. He knows who we are. He knows our depravity. He knows what we were born in. And yet, he has fixed his heart on us. This is the great doctrine of salvation. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Pastor Paul just read from. I want to look at this text and then jump into this lesson about irresistible grace. I call it an irresistible calling of grace. An irresistible calling of grace. What a chapter this is as we work our way down into chapter 4. We know the great passage of chapter 3. There is this veil that lays on the heart um, of man when they are lost. And that veil is only taken away in the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 says that we with unveiled faith, that mean, veiled faces, that means God has done something remarkably. He's removed the veil. And, he's, and we see, beholding in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. You see him radiant through you. God has now captured us and invaded us. And notice that we're being transformed into the image of Christ. But then we get to this passage that Paul read for us this morning. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, if God is transforming us into the image of his own Son, since we have the ministry as we received mercy... As we received mercy, notice, notice the language. Verbs are very important, aren't they, in the language? This is something you have received. 
You did not take it on your own. God gave it to you. So Paul says, as we receive mercy, we don't lose heart. Christian, have you lost heart lately? Have you gone through a struggle where you've lost some heart? There's nothing greater than the doctrine of salvation to bring your heart back where it needs to be. God granted you mercy. You would not be here. You would not desire the things of God. You certainly would not be saved. And you certainly wouldn't have any security of salvation of eternity if God would not have saved you. You received this from the Lord. What a great gift. Notice verse 2. But we have renounced, because of this resulting from this mercy that we have given, we've renounced the hidden things because of shame and not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. Notice this is what happens with people who haven't received mercy. This comes to people who, who think they're good enough, right? Who think they have some righteousness of their own. What happens, they end up... Uh, bringing shame to the Word of God. They, they, they are crafty in the way they deal with the Word of God. This is where the prosperity gospel has come from. It's not the true gospel. It's, it's men that haven't received mercy that use it as a game. It's a, it's a terrible teaching. And notice he says, or adulterating the Word of God, cheating on the Word of God. No, people who receive mercy never cheat on the Word of God. We take it literally, Right? We understand it literally and grammatically and historically and we teach it within its context. And then notice what he goes on to say. But, not according to those things, but by the manifestation, making real, right, of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Look, we can commend the word of God to people when we preach it right. We can call people to repentance. And yet God is the one who has that irresistible grace. Notice as we commend every man's conscience, commend truth to him, God's watching. God's involved in this. And so we have great hope to call sinners to Christ. But then we realize in verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. So we begin to realize there are people perishing. And the reason they're perishing is there's a veil that lays across them, spiritually speaking, and they can't see, nor, I would add this, hear the word of God. And they're lost. And notice he gives us a reason why, verse 4, in whose case, those who are veiled, right? The God of this world, who would that be? That's Satan himself, right? The pleasure that he produces in this world is, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And so, so this God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. They don't want to look at Christ. Notice the so that in the text here. This is always a resulting clause. Because they're blind, they might not see the light of the gospel. Might not, because God can open their eyes. And you know he has because he opened yours. <laughs> but his goal is to blind them to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Remember I've said so many times... Our lost family members and friends and neighbors and co-workers, they just haven't seen God's glory yet. They haven't seen the glory of Christ yet. When you got saved, you saw the glory of Christ. God removed that veil. And all of a sudden, you saw him to be true and real. And he died for your sins. And, and he grants you faith and repentance. And oh, what amazing work happens there, isn't it? And notice that Christ, who is the image of God, Hebrews says he's the exact representation 
verse 5, for we do not preach ourselves. What a foolish thing to do, to preach yourself. What are you going to do for anybody? We don't preach ourselves. The greatest human preacher of all times <laughs> that we would probably say is Apostle Paul, 13 epistles, countless churches, all that God used him says, look, we don't preach ourselves. What, what effort would there be? What value, Paul says, would there be if we preached ourselves? We would lead you right to hell if we preached ourselves. So Paul says, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. <laughs> oh, as master, as ruler. Kiros is the word there. Rat master, ruler, he's our ruler. We preach him as that. And ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. We, we are his eternal slaves. Happily, Paul says. Now notice verse 6. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who shone in our hearts. Now stop right there. Our hearts were black with sin until the Savior came in. You remember that song in BBS? So, so God in his infinite, irresistible grace comes and shines truth into our dark hearts. And notice that he goes all the way back to creation to use the example of God creating light as that of us being saved. Remember the world was covered in darkness as Genesis 1 and God created light. Later on he creates the sun, moon, and stars. Isn't that fascinating? See, this is his endless power. And he shines the truth into your heart. This is salvation, brothers and sisters, isn't it? To give light. Now notice this. What a phrase here. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You want to see God, look to Jesus. That's who he's showing you. That's who dwelt on this earth. And John says, we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten. We beheld the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul's repeating the same truth. This is the gospel, and it is not done in ourselves. But look, notice verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen, earthen vessels. These bodies, right? They're not what they used to be, right? So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. I, I, listen, I, I don't like what's happening with my body. I'm not sure you do either. But God reminds me that through this cracked vessel, right, that's not getting better, that God saves me for eternity. He even takes our fallen state of our humanity, right, and reminds us that this is something so far beyond what you can imagine what I'm doing. It is showing you my power. And brothers and sisters, every time somebody gets saved, God is to put his power on display in earthen vessels. Amen. Well, let me give you six thoughts as we think about irresistible grace today. An irresistible calling of grace. Number one, there's an absolute need of a divine calling for salvation. There's an absolute need of divine calling for our salvation. Now, a divine calling is demanded because fallen mankind is depraved and are utter, utterly sinful, right? So there has to be this calling, right? You cannot call yourself out of it. We are damned in our sins, aren't we? And the result of this is that salvation by Christ alone is rejected by all. Do you realize that? Tell God comes and opens your heart. So salvation by Christ alone is rejected by all men because of depravity. So we're in absolute need of this divine calling. Look with me at Romans chapter 3 real quick. 
I'm going to give you a ton of verses today. And I hope you've been writing verses down through this whole series. Because if you do, you'll have hundreds of passages of Scripture to go back to to help lead other people to Christ and be reminded of what he has done. And it's one of the most difficult things about preaching um, on these great doctrines of salvation is because there's so much there. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, you have the whole Bible to prove this point. So it's a lot of work, and I want, to, I want you to hear lots of passages. Well, let's, let's remind ourselves why there's an absolute need of the divine calling for salvation. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Now, Paul is going to quote Old Testament texts here, particularly Psalms and Isaiah here. But I want you to notice the first four words. As it is written. Sometimes we skip over little phrases like that, but if you're a student of the Bible, that should catch your attention. God said. This isn't Paul or, or, or somebody else, although Paul is divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit and moved along to write every uh, iota and every word of the scriptures. But I want you to understand, God said this, and here's what he said. Look at it in verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. Look further with me. There are none who understand, and here, most importantly, there is none who seek for God. See why there has to be an absolutely need for a divine calling. There's none. And see, he's so adamant because there's always that guy that says, uh, yeah, I'm an example. I'm, I'm an exemption. No, you're not. There's none who seek after God. See, we have to understand that when we deal with the lost, whether it's your own family members, your neighbors, your co-workers, whoever it may be, you have to understand they do not seek after God. That's the result of depravity. And this is why we plead with God that, they will, that he will open their hearts. Look with me over at John chapter 3. Again, when we teach on the doctrine of salvation, we cross through lots of application of salvation many, many times. These verses remind me of precious truth. John chapter 3, verse 19. Now look at this. This is the judgment. Okay? What's the judgment? Well, it says this. That the light has come into the world. Men love the darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. That's the judgment. Men love darkness. Mankind, people, is what the word is here. They love darkness. Why? Because they're born in darkness. This is depravity. So there's this absolute need of a divine calling because of that. Notice further, for their deeds were evil. Verse 20, for everyone who does evil hates the light. Second service is absolutely packed in here. First service is starting to fill up. But with the, the thousands and thousands of people who live in Ormond Beach and surrounding, why aren't there more here? Because they're lost. And it takes a divine work of God using us as his instruments to proclaim the gospel. See, they hate the light. And notice it does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. A lot of people are afraid of gospel preaching because it's going to expose who they are. Look at verse 21. But he who practices the truth comes to the light. Well, there's a difference. That's, that's someone who, who God has shown his grace to, right? We come to the light so that his deeds may be manifest, made real. And notice this right here, and this is phrase I'm after, as having been wrought in God. Look, all of us are here today because of God. 
Yeah, I know you got up and got yourself dressed and somehow got out of the house and got here on time, most of you. But you are here because of God. God, His irresistible grace has drawn you. So it's clear that salvation takes a supernatural, miraculous persuasion or calling by God. He has to call you out of darkness. And it's extremely important to realize that our salvation is not just a provision. Mm, unfortunately, too many people in Christianity teach, well, God has provided a salvation. It's up to you to, to choose or will yourself to it. Dismissing all the verses that says that you can't choose your way, you can't run your way, and you can't will your way to God. But he, what he has provided is an irresistible calling by God himself, otherwise you won't come. Look at John chapter 6 with me. Just go over a page or two. Verse 38. Of course, he's proclaimed himself to be the bread of life, right? He's come down to do the work of the Father. He, what, what the Father's doing, he's doing. He's making these phenomenal statements and causes him to be equal, equal, uh, equal with God. But notice verse 38. We've studied verse 37 in this series already. But look at verse 38 with me. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So if the Father has a will, if you're a believer, you're included in that will. This is what he wants done. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So he's not going to lose any of us. All that God has chosen from the foundations of the world, he will bring, and he's going to use an irresistible grace to draw us, right? Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son... You cannot get saved any other way except through Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life, right? So everyone who beholds, oh, it's such a beautiful word. It, it's used a, a theater when the, when the curtains go back and all of a sudden you see what's behind and God opens it up. It's the same thing as Paul's talking about when the veil is taken away. All those who behold the Son and believe in him will have eternal life and I myself will raise them up on the last day, keep going. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They're thinking manna, they don't get it. That was something pointing towards something greater. Verse 42, and they were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? See, it's the same thing argument people say today. Well, Jesus was just a man. Every religion of the world rejects him to be the father, equal with the father. They're saying the exact same thing, aren't they? Isn't he just Joseph's son? See how lost they are? How darkness lays upon their hearts, how the veil lays on their face. Verse 42, excuse me, verse 43. And Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. And then he, look at it, he comes right back again. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written, here it comes again, in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone, now listen to this, who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. There is no room for man's will in this, is there, in, in regards to salvation. What a statement. Now this word draws, helko is the Greek word there. 
It can be interpreted dragged. You've heard people say that, and I'll tell you why. Because in James chapter 2, um, verse 16, uses the exact same word about someone being dragged into court. It has this idea of, of an irresistible wooing, uh, an enticing, right? But it has, a, has an absolute dragging sense to it as well. The same word is used in Acts 16, 19. Paul and Silas were drugged from the marketplace. So there is a sense of dragging to us, isn't there? Because left to yourself, you just fight God, don't we? There is no way I can be that bad. I've had people tell me this all the time. Man, you guys preach that like we are the worst. Well, at least you heard it right. <laughs> We're deprived. There is nothing good in us. But see, people with a veil still on their face go, man, you guys are awful hard on us. You know, I've never done this and that. And they start listing all the good things they do. See, they're lost. The veil still lies. But not you. Not you who believe. You go, oh, Lord, there's nothing good in me. Thank you for dragging me to your son. <laughs> See, I'm talking about getting up in the morning. Want to do this with me this week? Every morning when you get conscience, Lord, thank you for dragging me to the son. I, I, I think we'll have a great week. Even with all the motorcycles. We'll have a great week. So, because of our depravity, there is this supernatural drawing, drawing that requires a work from God who alone can bring us to himself through the finished work of Christ in this effectual call from the Spirit. John Calvin said this, the most effective poison to lead men to ruin is to boast in themselves and in their own wisdom and power. It's the most effective prison, poison. Let them boast in their own self. See, Ephesians 2, 9, so we love 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, right? But 9 says, as not a work, as not as a result of works, so that one would boast. Irresistible grace teaches us that God drew me. God did all the work. I stand here only to boast in him alone. Amen? Second thought. The irresistible call of God comes through his initiative and his grace. Go back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to jump in and out of this text. Such a beautiful text. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Notice in verse 4. Notice that there's an initiative by God here. We're blinded, right? Before we're saved, we're blinded by the God of this world. Satan has this blinding effect. Sin has this blinding effect on the unbeliever. And the goal is to keep us from seeing the gospel of the glory of Christ. But Paul says in verse 5, the reason we don't preach ourselves is because we cannot initiate our salvation. There must be someone greater who can initiate and bring grace greater than us. So Paul says we don't preach ourselves, but we preach Christ as our master and us as his slaves, his bondservants. Because only he can take the initiative. Now, I'm going to be very clear on this, especially as I wrap this message up towards the end, is that God allows us to play a tremendous role in pleading with people to come to faith. But we must realize that it is his initiative that he must take in order to save. 
And so before you share the gospel with somebody, you should pray, oh, God, will you save this person? Often when I'm getting a gospel conversation with somebody who's lost, I immediately go, God, you've got to do the work here. And I begin to rehearse to this person what I know God did for me as I tell them, on the back of my mind, I'm saying, oh, God, please save them. Will you take the initiative and rescue this soul? Now, notice that he, in verse 6, shines light out of darkness. It's an amazing thing. I mean, the visuals are pretty awesome there. When you think of creation, everything's covered in blackness, and all of a sudden, God creates light. You know, they study light. Not the source of the light, but they study light. And they've actually studied light, and the guys of the creation research have realized that it actually is aged, and it tells you the exact time or somewhere close within the time of creation. And they study it because it has a fracture, and it has a bent in it that helps them understand how long light has been around. Well, let me tell you this. I can tell you how long light has been around in my life because I know when Jesus saved me. When he, sa- when he shot lightness into my dark heart as a young boy, helped me understand that I was not holy and God was and there was only one way to come to him. I know that time. And I pray that you do too. When we think about irresistible grace, I thought I would give you a couple of definitions as I go through this, but here's one. The grace of God in the act of regeneration by which God successfully opens blind eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Christ and grants spiritual life to sinners' dead hearts. I love that. I took it from a lot of different and put my own flair on it there. I love that. In other words, God's irresistible saving grace works upon the heart of the elect so that they will respond in faith to God's salvific calling. I marvel at that. That God would do that in my life. He would draw me in such a way. Now, certainly God gives a general call of salvation by announcing to all, all who are weary, come to me. And furthermore, Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. And there is a clear distinct between a general calling and the chosen. We see that throughout the scriptures, right? Those who are chosen are objects of God's special and effectual calling, his irresistible grace. And this special calling means that God works in a particularly effective way with the elect. He's enabling them to respond with with repentance and faith. Isn't that beautiful? Go, I repented of my sins. Yeah, you wouldn't have if it wasn't for God. (laughs) Right? So he must plunge faith and repentance into your heart because in a dark heart, won't do that on its own. And so God enables us to respond with repentance and faith and rendering our lives over to him despite, despite the grip depravity has. He's greater than sin, isn't he? His grace is greater than all my sin. Remember that old hymn that we've sang? We sang it here recently. So irresistible grace is by large the great work of the Holy Spirit. Remember we've talked about several times that all of the Godhead has their hands in our salvation. And here when we get into irresistible grace we see a, a large measure of the work done by the Holy Spirit. He illuminates truth to the unbeliever. All those verses you've been sharing with somebody, God takes that and illuminates at the time of salvation. Remember, our brother Steve was lost for so long. He used to get so mad at me and cut me off forever. 
So I would just fax him passages of scripture. Back when they had fax machines, right? So he'd go into the office and here's a stack laying on the floor from the fax machine of verses that I gave him. So he'd go, I'd get so mad at you. But I'd read them for some reason. Because the word of God is what the spirit uses, right? He illuminates truth to the unbeliever. Enabling the recipient to understand the meaning of the gospel. This is what the spirit does. He... He is the spotlight ministry of God, right? (laughs) He shines truth into the hearts of people. And this working of the Holy Spirit is necessary because of the nature of depravity. No no humans grasp God on their own. Do you realize that? They come up with all kinds of crazy things. Oh, he's into trees. You know, he's he's, he's this and he's that, you know. and, And, oh, I got a thing with God. They're completely lost of who is God if it wasn't for the work of the Spirit, right? Titus 3, 5, and 6 tell us he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, now here comes the Spirit, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us lavishly. Wow. That's irresistible grace, isn't it? How do you resist the Spirit? Now, much of the world has heard the general call of salvation. Right? Romans 1 even tells them that they're without excuse. They've seen the creation of God, right? But God has given a designation to, to certain people, and he calls them the called. The believers, right? We're called the called. Kaleo, we're called out ones, right? Now, this term emphasizes God's grace and initiative, right? And that's what the part of this point is. God's grace and his, his initiative to call sinners out of depravity and bring us to Christ. We hear this all through the scriptures. There's just not enough time to look at verses, but just listen to a couple. Romans 1, 6. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. As he's introducing the letter to the, book, to the, to the church in Rome, he says, you are among the called of Jesus Christ. Okay, it makes you feel good, doesn't it? I mean, not in a proudful way, but isn't it amazing? You took this schlub... This, this guy deserving of eternal damnation, and you made him the called? This is the grace of God, isn't it? It's amazing, 1 Corinthians 1.21, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, and that's been all unveiled to us, right? We'll get into more of that when we get into our series on 1 Corinthians. So, the scriptures use the term the called as a description of someone who has become a believer by God's irresistible grace. We're the called. Now, the reason why this, the reason why is, is, is this God is so emphatic that he must do the initiative because without it we can't get there. Just I want to throw in a few more verses, stuff you have to write down. Second, uh, excuse me, 2 Timothy 1.9. The Bible says here, Paul speaking to young Timothy, he says, who has saved us and called us? With a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose in grace. So remember I said it's his initiative. It's his purpose, right? And, and we hear that. That's, God calls us according to his purpose. Romans 8.28, we all know this verse, but towards the end it says, to, the, to those who are called according to his purpose. God calls his called out of darkness. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, after he tells us we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people after God's own possession. 
And the goal of this is that we may proclaim the excellence of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then we're reminded, Jesus himself at the end of that great passage in John chapter 6, that he actually and effectually calls his people to himself through Jesus Christ. And Jesus said this in John 6.65. For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been, now listen to this word, granted him by the Father. What an amazing thing. We're called by God. Augustine ran into a lot of difficulties in the early church. He put out some writings that were taking on the Pelagian view. If you remember in the early church that Pelagius came along, he believed that man, despite fall, had, there was some goodness somewhere in them. They, they were still relatively good. And he started presenting to this church, and of course he came under church discipline, and it was eventually excommunicated from the church. And so, but yet the effects of his man-centered and flesh-appealing theology, did you hear the way I labeled that? Had, had made great damage in the church. So Augustine wrote this in this letters of anti-Pelagian writings that he put out. Listen to this. It's certain, it is certain that it is we that act when we act, but it is he who makes us act by applying efficacious power to our will who has said, I will make you to walk in my statutes and to observe my judgments and to do them. Also when he said, I will make you to do them, what else does he say in fact than... I will take away from you your heart of stone from which you arose, from which arose your inability to act, and I will give you a heart of flesh in order that you may act. And what does this promise amount to but this? I will remove your hard heart out of which you did not act, and I will give you an obedient heart out of which you shall act. Isn't that awesome? You know, one of the things they say about us that teach the doctrines of grace is say, oh, you just teach about robots. Well, I'm talking, I don't know a robot that has a heart of flesh. Robots have a heart of stone. They're programmed. In fact, it's just the opposite. The damned are programmed for eternal damnation. God does an amazing act, takes out that heart of stone gives us, this is when you get saved, gives you a heart of flesh so you can act upon his irresistible grace. And that's what Augustine's teaching. Now, it's still all the work of God because if he doesn't change your heart out, you don't change. Isn't that marvelous? Third thought, the chief shepherd divinely calls his chosen sheep to salvation. The chief shepherd divinely calls his chosen sheep to salvation. Now, certainly... It is the Father who elects the unbelievers, the Holy Spirit who illuminates the unbelievers to truth. But it is also Christ who calls unbelievers to be saved and follow him. In fact, Christ calls us by name, the Bible says, to salvation. He knows us. We hear his voice and we follow him. John chapter 10, verse 3. To him the door opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his sheep by name and leads them out. Now there are some people who go, oh, that's Israel. They'll throw that at you. Well, then, let's just drop down to 16, if you can't believe that. Verse 16, John chapter 10 says this, I have other sheep. Uh-oh. <laughs> Someone besides Israel. 
Isn't this interesting? I have other sheep, now listen to this, which are not of this fold. I must bring them in. Now, I want to stop right there in that verse. I must bring them in. I'm in John 16, verse 10. Now, why must he bring them in? Because we can't come. Notice the, the emphatic nature of that verse. I must bring them in. It isn't just simply because the Father gives them to us as, as, as magnificent as that is. The problem is, is we can't come in. So the verse is teaching that there's an inability on our part, and it takes his ability to perform it. So Jesus says, look, I've got other sheep. They're not of this fold. And I, I myself must bring them in. That's the power of Christ, isn't it? I love that. I, I got stuck on that verse for too long in my study this week and just started marveling at what the Lord was doing. Standing in this extremely Jewish world, almost to the cross, preaching, and they're all thinking, we got the kingdom, everybody else, these Romans, all these other pagan Gentiles are going to be underneath us. And he goes, no, 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 I got others. But there's a problem. Like you, they can't get to me. So I got to bring them in. It's going to be through the Godhead that we're going to bring them in. And notice that the verse goes on to say, and they will hear my voice. They'll hear. You heard the Lord talk to you, didn't you? Not in some goofy, mystical way, but you were sitting there wherever it was when you got saved and you go, I'm lost. <laughs> He's, that preacher's talking about me. That Sunday school teacher's talking about me. That passage is talking about me. And you heard him. And they will hear, I love that, they will hear my voice. Inescapable, the elect are inescapable to the irresistible grace of God. He's going to find them. He will lose none of them. And they will become one flock with one shepherd. Often God's calling begins with just a gentle awareness, doesn't it? But someone outside of you is calling. It's not you. It's not your black, darkened, veil-laden heart. <laughs> it's someone else. And from our perspective, we are being addressed and no one else is hearing what we're hearing. I cannot tell you through the years of preaching how many people come and say, Pastor, were you following me around this week? Did you know what I did? I mean, and they act, they act like I'm, yeah, well, I was like, I'm going to say, yeah, I was. I'm sorry, I was in your backyard. Because what's happening is the Spirit of God is speaking. The voice of the Lord through the Word of God is drawing them. They're sensing Him. They know that there's something wrong, eternally wrong with them. And that God is wooing and pulling and dragging and bringing them to Himself. And you hear it. And this is what He does. And sometimes you sit in a service and you feel completely alone like nobody else is there because the Word of God is coming after you. Because that's what God does. Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, verse 32, I've not come to call the righteous. See, people who are self-righteous never hear this. They kind of look around and go, but must be a bunch of wicked people around here. I don't know what these people did. See, they don't hear it. But then he says, but sinners to repentance. Oh, there we are. If you're a sinner, if you're a sinner, oh, there's great news. God saves sinners. He gives sinners his irresistible grace. That's great news, isn't it? He saves sinners. So this call is a divine summons that will not be rejected. 
it will not be rejected. And it's, it's more than just some kind of invitation, right? Because it comes with the creative power of God to bring sinners who, who have a veil that lays upon them to understand in the need to receive Jesus. This thing is so irresistible. It is so great because it's God's creative work that he laid down before the foundations of the world, executed by the Son of God who hung on the cross for us, and in, imputed to us through the Spirit of God. What an amazing truth. Think about just Lazarus for a moment. <laughs> He's dead. The girls are going, Lord, if you go open that tomb, it's bad. He's way past the spirit hanging around the body, this mystical thing the Jews believed in. He's dead for days. He's going to stink. Don't open that door. And God says, let me tell you, I'm going to call him, and he's going to walk out of there. Isn't that amazing? It's exactly what he did with you. We should all change our name to Lazarus. He calls us, and we walk out of the tomb. Dead people walk out because God's irresistible grace says, get up and get out here. <laughs> Aren't you so glad he did that to you? He called you out of death. That's what he does. In fact, God's irresistible calling incorporates the entire process that leads to salvation. And think about this. Yes, even the results, it even results in justification. God's irresistible grace results in Justification, Romans 8, 30, you know this. These whom he predestined, predetermined their future. He also called. These whom he called, he what? He also justified. Calling leads to justification. It's not some calling like, well, I'll just throw it out there, hope something plants. When God calls you, he's going to justify you. He does not have some fake calling or leave it into your court because if he leaves it in your court, you'll never come. His goal is when he calls unbelievers is to justify them, declare them righteous, not only now, but for eternity. That's his goal. One more thought on this. Think about this. Not only does God's irresistible grace call us into justification, but he calls us into fellowship with him. The word is koinia. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is faithful. Amen through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So God calls us into this koinonia, this, this love bond with his son, with the entire Godhead. He calls you into this. Oh, I've heard Christians say, well, I just don't know if God loves me like he loves you. Wow, that's a dismissal of his truth. God loves us. And he calls us into koinonia, he calls us into fellowship. So God's effectual call or his irresistible grace brings conviction to the unbeliever, draws that unbeliever to himself, causing that unbeliever to be regenerated by giving him the gift of faith, resulting in justification and eternal fellowship with God Almighty. Wow. <laughs> Is anybody awake out there? Because I'm about ready to come out of my boots. And I've known this for 50 years, this stuff. And every day it gets richer and richer and richer and realize, look what he has done for me. And yet we'll walk by unbelievers and never offer them this. Offer this to people. God's got to save them, but offer it. Last thought. For the instrument of the word of God in his divine intervention 
are the basis of irresistible grace. The instrument of the Word of God and His divine intervention are the basis of irresistible grace. Well, God's sovereign irresistible call of grace is never given apart from the Word of God, right? People hear the Word of God. They read it. They hear it. I have friends or testimonies, terrible lives, laying in a, in a hotel thinking about killing themselves and pull out the drawer and there's what? A Gideon Bible. And people get saved. The Word of God changes people's life. It's what He uses. And so this call goes out through the preaching, the proclamation, the reading of God's truth. And it's an indis- it's, it's a undiscriminate call from our sake, right? I have no idea who is lost in this room. Jesus said there's always tares among the weak. They're certainly in the room in a, in a church this size. There's doubtlessly people who are not in the faith, but they're camped among the wheat, hiding out in there, and the only way to discover them, because the disciples say, should we pull out those tares? He says, no, 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 you uproot the wheat. I'll separate them someday. But the only way to identify them is through the proclaimed word of God. Look at Romans chapter 10 with me. Romans 10, 8. Romans chapter 10, verse 8, but what does it say? Well, what is it? It's the scriptures. And he goes on to quote him. The word, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That's the word of God. This is not, man, there's some people have taken this verse. This word of faith movement is deadly. It is a racket from the pits of hell. Word of faith is tied to the word of God. That's why he says, what does it say? What, is it, what did God say? It's written, those forth, because it's tied to the word of God. But notice verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, Master, that means you've had to repent, right? And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is the simplistic message of the gospel that is irresistible when God gives it. I'm a sinner. I can only be saved through the grace of Christ. I believe. That's what irresistible grace does. Notice again verse 11. For the scripture says. Not some word of faith, weirdo, mystic movement, right? For the, for the scripture say, whoever believes in me will not be disappointed. <laughs> well, that's an understatement. I don't want to say that of the word of God, but isn't that funny? Disappointed. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me in all my life. That God saved me. Oh my goodness. I'm never disappointed in what God has done. Look at verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Praise the Lord. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, who's who's driving that calling? That is God's work in your life. You called out to Him because He had already called you. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 13 For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him who have not heard? And how will they not hear without a preacher? Hey, preacher, who are you sharing the gospel with? See, God controls, remember we said this last week, God controls the end, but he also controls the means to the end. He calls us to preach the gospel. 
to share the gospel, a written note to someone, a passage of scripture, a reminder of the gospel to somebody, telling them what God has done for you. In verse 15, how will they preach unless they are sent? Well, I'm sending you guys right now. Go. Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is the work of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 and 19 tells us that we have the ministry of reconciliation. You know, God gave you the ministry of reconciliation. Well, what's reconciliation? It means to change your position. I once was lost in sin, right? Now I'm alive in Christ. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We carry that. This is, now we don't change, we don't save anybody, right? We don't change them, but we carry this message, the ministry of reconciliation. We preach the gospel and lives are changed because we took time in God's infinite plan to share God's truth with somebody. And he gives us the ministry. Peter, in his great sermon, as he started, as his church got birthed, he said, repent each one of you. We call people to Repentance. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, I am calling you to repentance. I'm pleading with you. And the only way you're going to be saved is because I know God's going to change your heart, but he tells me to call you to repentance. Plead with you to turn. Repentance means change your direction. Oh God, I have nothing to offer you. Save me. That's a pretty simple line, isn't it? And if it's something the Spirit puts in your heart, you know it's of God, not of you. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we're ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors. What's an ambassador do? Well, he goes to the other nations for the sake of his nation, right? His job is to go over there for the purposes of his nation. We are a royal priesthood. We're a holy ethnos of God, and we're ambassadors of him, and so we proclaim the truth, the truth of reconciliation. You can be changed. You can be hell-bound, and you can be heaven-bound. By the grace of God, we never stop presenting them. And we should never be ashamed to offer the promise of forgiveness. Never be ashamed to offer the promise of forgiveness. They may laugh at you. We live in America. It, it, you're not, there, odds are no one's going to die right now for this. So why are we so afraid? Why do our hearts start beating? And, and we start stumbling and bumbling sometimes? Offer it. Tell people. They, they may turn around and walk away. But how many testimonies have we heard later where somebody was just, they told me the gospel, I laughed at them, I mocked at them. I have dear friends who threw tomatoes at them at Berkeley and got saved later and became great preachers. Offer forgiveness. Jesus on the road to Emmaus before his ascension talked to the disciples that he was walking with in chapter 24, 46 through 49, uh, 47 is the verses that Jesus said to him, thus it is written, that the Christ must suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. Listen to this. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Because of irresistible grace, you and I can proclaim the gospel to the world. And we do that here. It's so powerful that Paul and Barnabas went to Antioch, Pesada, and they began to preach and the Jews, there was Jews there that hated them. And he said, let, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, speaking to the other Jews, this is before he turns to the Gentiles, that through him, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. 
And through him, everyone who believes is free from all things from which he could not be freed from the law of Moses. That's boldness gospel preaching to people who thought they could be made righteous through the law of Moses. He says, it's being offered to you right now. If you go on to read that text, it says, some of them believed and started following Paul, but others mocked him and sought how they could destroy him. You get two different reactions depending on what God's doing, right? But look, we offer the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, just before his death in John 16, that night before his death, said, look, I'm gonna, I gotta go because I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. And you know what he's gonna do? He's gonna convict the world of sin. You guys believe in the Holy Spirit? Okay, I think, I think he's legitimate, don't you? I'm being facetious. You know what his job is? Convict the world of sin. You notice the text didn't say you're supposed to convict them of sin. There's someone better than that. He's quite a bit better than any preacher. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict them of sin. Preach the gospel. That's what he came to do. Jesus says, I got to go so the Spirit can come and it'll convict the world of sin. And then you can preach the gospel and they'll believe. And I'll draw them to myself. I love that truth. So the Holy Spirit grants regeneration and sinners are made alive. And they're renewed according to the kind intentions of God. Over and over we saw in Ephesians, according to the kind intentions, God is kind and he saves people. Look, there's faith and repentance when sinners are brought by God to embrace and receive Christ. It's all there. Dabney, an old theologian in the 1800s, preached right through the middle of the Civil War, um, wrote this about it. He says, the effectual call will hold... Consist, uh, it consists of elements, the work of the Holy Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightens our minds and the knowledge of Christ, renews our wills. He doth pursue and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely and then offer the gospel to others. That's what he does. And this truth has been handed down, from, down through the ages, men and women freely sharing the gospel let me give you a charge. J.C. Ryle said this. I love this. Do you ever try to do good to others? Paul started, oh, no, Josh started off with Galatians 6 today. Doing good. J.C. Ryle says, do you ever try to do good to others? If you do, then he says, this is what you need to do. Remember to tell them about Christ. Tell the young, tell the poor, tell the aged, tell the ignorant, tell the sick, tell the dying. Tell them all about Christ. Tell them what he has done for the chief of sinners. Tell them what he is willing to do until the last day of time. Tell them over and over again. Never be tired of speaking of Christ. Say to them broadly and fully and freely and unconditionally and unreservedly and undoubtedly, come to Christ as the penitent, as the penitent thief did. Come unto Christ and you will be saved. I can boldly proclaim that because my trust is in the irresistible grace of God to draw people. Tell them about Christ. Will you stand with me? Let me read to you a charge and then we'll be dismissed. Last night after I had finished the last of my study, I sat down and wrote this. I really wrote it to myself, but you can listen in. So I offer to you freely Jesus Christ as your Savior. I offer this to you by the truth of the Word of God, apart from any of your own works. 
I offer to you to call upon God at this very moment to save you, enable you to believe and embrace Jesus as your Savior alone. I plead with you to believe the Word of God that your sins have separated you from a holy God and you are without hope. I offer to you believe that only through Jesus Christ can our debts be paid, our sin removed forever in order for you to receive eternal life in the presence of Almighty God. What will you do with this offer? Amen?